0: Hey, everybody. What's up? I guess we've hit record here. Yes, we are recording. Good day, wherever you are today and whatever you're up to. It is uh, so good to be chatting and talking with you and uh, hopefully whatever you're doing today, uh, you're just having a great time and it's midweek And uh, we're really excited to be doing this. Now, if you don't know, on the weekend, on Sunday, we introduced a brand new series as a community called From Redemption to Recycling. From Redemption to Recycling. Basically, what we're looking to do is, over the next 11 weeks, is tackle a ton of topics and questions and different things that we're wrestling through as Jesus followers. Basically, we're at a moment where we feel like if we're not just gonna play church, but we're gonna be a community that practices the way of Jesus together, there's a ton to wrestle through and people have all a litany, all sorts of questions uh, that they're wrestling through. And we felt like this is a beautiful season and time in the life of our church to really put everything on the table. That's actually our hope. We want to put everything on the table and leave some room to discuss and talk through, and wrestle through some really pertinent, I guess is the word, issues and topics in our day. And the reality is, as you get around a community, people have questions. I don't know if you have questions. I don't know if you know this, but we we are wrestling through texts, which is the Bible, from thousands of years ago, from the ancient Near East, from the first century under the Greco-Roman Empire. If we were all honest, things change, and we have On the other hand, a rapidly changing culture around us and how does the Bible fit and the way of Jesus? How do we do this in our moment? And we've just been feeling like there's a ton of things that we really want to tackle. Now, I'm not going to list those things because... Um, What we did is on Sunday, we introed this series. So if you haven't listened to the introduction, you can go back and take a few minutes and listen through. And we just chat about some ground rules that we're hoping to set forth as we do this. And then as well, we talk about what we're gonna be talking about. And out of that, what we said is there is no freaking way that we're going to be able to cover everything we want to simply on Sundays in our teachings. And so one of the questions we had around this is, how do we do this? And how we're going to do this is we're going to utilize this space, which is our podcast, to really tackle things even further midweek. And so some weeks, uh, we've said that there'll be teachings on Sundays and we're just going to have to stop because there's not enough time and we'll cultivate the discussion farther midweek. And then we're also going to use this for things that we just can't even, even get introduced on Sundays. Um, some of the topics and things will solely be midweek podcasts. So some weeks there'll be just one midweek to kind of follow up. Other weeks we may take one or two or three, I don't know how many, um, of, uh, on subjects that we haven't been able to even get going and use the Midweek Podcast as a place and space where we tackle these things. So we have a whole smorgasbord, I think is the word. Word of the the day, right there. A whole smorgasbord of things that we wanna tackle and things that you've been wrestling through, things that we and our team have been wrestling through, and ultimately things that are really important in how we follow Jesus. And so we set some ground rules in the introduction if you wanna listen, and many of you listen to that. And we're just excited about the days to come, excited about this avenue. Um, For some of you guys that are really learners and want to kind of lean in in a deeper way, this is a great place and space for us to kind of do this together. And so we said if you have questions, please submit questions. We don't have all the answers, but we're working together as a community to really again, wrestle through these things, you can use hello at mypraxis.church as the main source of questions and and if you want to use that email. But if you want to ask questions anonymously, we've also set up a website on our website at mypraxis.church slash questions where you can actually submit questions anonymously if you want those to be anonymous. But again, really excited about the days to come. Thanks for even taking the time. I hope you'll stick with us through some of these things. And uh, I do think, again, all of us have questions. All of us are wrestling through what it means to follow Jesus in this moment. And one of the hopes is, is why not do this together? And I, I think we all need physical community to do that. But uh, this avenue, I think, is helpful as, as individuals as well as we kind of wrestle through these things. And so uh, to get the ball rolling, we didn't get into something really controversial. Like over the next month even, we're gonna be talking about things like hell and judgment and uh, things like eschatology, we're going to talk about creation, evolution, and science, and just really wade deep into some of these things. But for the introduction, what we did is we began to talk about kingdom, gospel, salvation, and church, and uh, talked about what the kingdom is, what salvation is, what the gospel is, and how the church fits into this. And one of the things we didn't have, I don't think we had enough time to really do, was talk about the role of the church. A lot of us just have questions about how the church fits into this whole thing. A lot of people have church baggage, let's be honest. There's a lot of baggage that sometimes we bring because of past church experiences And many of that is rightfully so, right? All of us have different experiences. Some of us are brand new to this whole thing and have just started to follow Jesus in his way. And so you're fresh. And yet church is a crucial part of this. And I also am coming from a little bit of a bent where it's the thing that I'm particularly most passionate about and love and all but at the same time also knowing we need to have real conversations about the church and what it is and what its role is in all of this. So, the next few minutes are simply going to be some ramblings from a pastor dude on the church. Um some random thoughts from a random pastor dude. On the church and what it means, what the church means for our particular moment. Now, one of the things we get into as we cultivate an idea around the kingdom of God is a lot of times we, but people ask, what is, what's the difference between the kingdom and the church? So there's this anticipated kingdom, and then Jesus, as we know, inaugurates, and I know that's kind of a big word, inaugurates the kingdom of God. And yet, how do these things fit? Well, we talked on Sunday that a kingdom has a couple things, any kingdom, including Jesus' kingdom, has a ruler and a people. Jesus is king of the kingdom, and he is the Messiah, and then there are these citizens which are the people of God, people who have... Um, repented, turned from themselves and their sin, and placed their trust or their allegiance in Jesus as king. So the king has active rule on this kingdom. It was a guy named George Ladd who really began uh, a number of years ago, he's a theologian, to talk about inaugurated eschatology, this idea that Jesus, I know it's a big word, but he inaugurated the kingdom with his coming and then we'll return to bring it in its totality. It's kind of like, uh, I think one of the great pictures of it, it's kind of like D Day and VE Day. So, a great way of describing. The way the kingdom is working now is between D-Day and V-E-Day. Because if you know anything about history and the wars, the mid-20th century, early 20th century, D-Day was June 6th, 1944, when it was the Normandy landing. The Allied troops ended on Norman, uh, landed on Normandy. They descended on Normandy. And if you know anything about that moment and that day, that was essentially the battle that defeated Germany. It was basically the day where defeat was coming, but it was actually over, or just under a year, sorry, until the ultimate victory came on VE Day, which was May 8th, 1945. And on VE Day, there was unconditional surrender by the Germans. So you have D Day, which was a year earlier, and there's still some little battles being fought. A great picture of the kingdom is that Jesus came and it was like D Day, his atoning work for. Uh, his uh, for the world uh, this idea that Jesus comes as this substitute and through his life his death his burial his resurrection his ascension as we talk the whole gospel the whole good news is that the kingdom was inaugurated now we live in between we are waiting for ve day where there will be complete uh, surrender of the powers and the principalities that are at play and every knee will bow to Jesus as king and so Great picture. You know, George Ladd, he says it like this. The kingdom of God is the redemptive reign of God, dynamically active to establish his rule among men and women. And this kingdom, which will appear as an apocalyptic act at the end of the age, has already come into human history in the person and mission of Jesus to overcome evil, to deliver men from its powers, and to bring them into the blessing of God's reign. So what does this mean then? Because you have the kingdom and you have the church. Are these things together? Are these things separate? Because I've noticed a lot of people, especially younger people, want to talk about the kingdom and kingdom work, but want to avoid talking about the church. And I would just say, and I think we have wrestled through this uh, over time, is that the church is actually what makes the kingdom of God visible. I don't think these things are actually things we necessarily need to separate. Um, These things work together. The kingdom is made visible in our present age by the gathered people of God. This is like non-negotiable. You cannot pick up the New Testament and look at what it says without understanding that there is this covenant community that is the church that lives this out. And uh, so I, I think kingdom should be on our lips, absolutely, but I don't think at the expense of the church and... The church has an incredibly deep and profound role to play in this whole story. Um, Craig Keener puts it like this. He talks about how the kingdom is coming. So he says the human responsibility to repent or to turn around, which, by the way, is the words of Jesus, these words to change, he says, is not urged so that the kingdom will come, but explicitly because the kingdom is coming whether we turn or not. What a great way of putting it. The kingdom of, is coming. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is coming to earth as it is in heaven. Whether we turn or not, we do not bring the kingdom by our turning. And then he puts, says this, we suffer the kingdom's coming either blessedly by going to our needs and repentance or banefully by turning our backs. Here He says this, here comes our, God's new world. Turn around and face it. And so... The way the kingdom and the church works, I think, is like this. We now, as the church, live as citizens of God's kingdom in the here and now. We live, the church, is the citizens of God's kingdom actively gathered together in the here and now. So the church makes the kingdom of God visible, and the church, this is really important, is a foretaste of the future kingdom of God. And what that means is now as we practice and we as we live this out, we are a foretaste of what it is. We should be a foretaste at least. We should be the foretaste of heaven when it comes in totality. And I know many of us hear that and we think there's no way. Like if you only knew the churches I've been a part of and the things I've seen. Oh, I totally get it. I get the disconnect from, from the, what the call is on the church to actually how oftentimes it lives out. But the church should be a foretaste. J.R. Woodward, he puts it best. He says, the church is called to be a foretaste of God's kingdom. A place where people can get a taste of the future in the present. When the church is a foretaste, it demonstrates what life is like when men and women live under the rule and reign of God. When the people of God love one another, encourage one another, forgive one another, and live in harmony with one another. In this way, the church becomes a concrete, tangible, uh, though not perfect foretaste of the kingdom that is to come. A beautiful picture of the call that the church, the church is not anything different than the kingdom. The, The church is the thing that makes the kingdom tangible in our present age. And so the church is important. And just as on Sunday in the teaching, I do think we need to double down on the reality that church is actually something you go to. Now, I know we've already talked about this, but I just wanna reiterate that church is something you go to. I've had to go through my own deconstruction with this because there was a season in my life where I would say things like, I am the church. doesn't matter what I go, it doesn't matter if I go to a gathering, doesn't matter what I do, I my identity is the church. And through my own deconstruction and reconstruction of this, I just think all of us need to think about this and think about this statement. Because there are part truths to the reality that yes, the church is our identity, but the church has never been viewed throughout history as something that's my identity without it being gathered with other people. Uh, Even on Sunday, we talked about how the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, uses the word, uh, it translates the word synagogue into ecclesia for the most part. And I just want you to think through the how ludicrous it would sound for somebody to say I am the synagogue. Like imagine somebody saying I am the synagogue or I I am the gathering. It seems to me that church and synagogue for the most part were synonymous. And the synagogue and the ecclesia, which wasn't, that word wasn't mutually exclusive to Jesus in the New Testament. It was actually a word used in the Roman Senate for a gathering or an assembly of people. It was like a town hall. That was ecclesia, and then Paul uses it. Those things were often synonyms. Church and synagogue were synonyms. And so I've been watching my language that I don't just come across simply saying, I am the church, without the reality That the church is the gathered covenant people of God. You know, it's one thing, I think, to be in Christ or be a Jesus follower. It's another thing to be the church. And ultimately, we are the church, not when we're dispersed, but when we're together as a covenant gathering. And I've just been really wrestling through how can we be a foretaste of the kingdom of God if we're never together, right? Right. And so think through that. I am the church. I get what you're saying. I get your, what you're saying when you say I am the church. But church was always an assembly. It was something people went to and gathered to. Now notice what I'm doing here. I am, if you notice, what have I not said and what have we not said? We haven't said a particular time or place or space. I actually think those things are absolutely wide open. We always joke in our context that we meet Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Because it's just a better time than Wednesday at noon. And I think you would agree. But church is a gathering. And I think we need to get back to the the, the whole Septuagint stuff I, has been a part of my journey because I have had to peel down and go, okay, what is church? Church is a gathering. You know, it's interesting. A couple of years ago, a guy named Francis Chan, who I love, by the way, great guy. Don't know him, but great guy. He went to Facebook and was sharing with the Facebook community there and some of the staff there about his transition and change from a megachurch pastor in Southern California to a more integrated form of church. And so he was just sharing the journey of how he went from this massive church, it was more attractional, people just kind of came from everywhere, all over the region to this particular church, and now he's doing more integrated things like house church and smaller forms of church that are more discipleship oriented. And it was interesting through this whole process and and watching this that, you know, it was so funny as that happened, there were a ton of articles and videos and all sorts of stuff put online about how Francis Chan has moved from the megachurch to, you know, the smaller form of church and everybody was loving it. So many great articles, especially from millennials that were really poking at Poking, I really sounded Canadian there. Poking at a, poking at um, the megachurch as kind of this thing that is done should be done with, and it's the you know the evils of the megachurch, and everybody should do what Francis Chan is doing, the small integrated things. And I'll just say, I love what Francis is doing. Uh, just watching from a distance, uh, if anything, too, it's probably our church would probably line up, our community would line up more with what he's doing. But here's the thing, it doesn't matter. Honestly, it doesn't matter. Where your church meets, when your church meets, how big it is. You could plant a church in my freaking basement, for goodness sake. I still have to get up, wake up, put my pants on, hopefully, and go downstairs and be a part of the church. And because church is something we participate in it's a gathering it's a covenant community and i just find it funny that there was so much banter around all oh, this new way it doesn't matter if your church is 10 people in a coffee shop you still have you and i and i'm counting myself in this still have to participate and so church church is a gathering at the at the root of everything that the church was in the in the roman world in the in the roman senate world it was a gathering And there is no doubt that it was a gathering of people in the first century that followed Jesus together. Time, location, that is up for grabs, man. I think we need to be more creative than ever. But church was a gathering of people, not just your identity. So just let's all be careful just to say I am the church as though that means I can just do whatever I want and be my own autonomous kind of self and do the things that I want to do. There's actually limitations when it comes to participating in the church because it's a covenant group of people. Whoa. Um, that's my little rant on um, you know the church's identity. We've got to be careful with that. Hope you're picking up what I'm putting down now. The other thing I run into, we're just going to talk, I'm just, this is just total randomness, things that I feel like are coming up constantly, especially in our post-Christian world. People will often say this too and ask this question, okay, okay, you've explained the whole church is a gathering, it's not just my identity, fair enough, and maybe you'll buy into that if you hadn't bought into that idea. But a lot of people then ask, is it worth it? Like, come on, here we are. 21st century, post-Christian, we have an iPhone in our pocket, we're enlightened, right? We're smarter than ever, like somehow we think we're smarter than people a couple thousand years ago. We have science now, we've been through the enlightenment. Is the gathering, if church is a covenant gathering of people, is it really worth it though? Great question. This is a question every single person has to wrestle through. Is church worth it? Now can I just say, I am convinced, and at Praxis we're pretty convinced on the reality that our, our gathering on Sundays, our liturgy together, is actually something that forms and shapes us. It's a way in which we practice the way of Jesus. Not everybody's convinced on that, but it's it's so interesting because my hand is in other areas in life, and one of the things, that, if you know me, one of the things I'm very passionate about is sports. And it's just been really funny to hear people question about church, you know the uh, the identity piece, and now the, is it worth it? Is it really worth it to get together regularly with the church? And yet, it's so funny in other areas of life to watch people and their commitment and what they give their time and energy to. i uh, I have three young boys and a young daughter as well, but my three boys right now all play hockey. And we're turning into a bit of a hockey family. And hockey has been, uh, among other sports, has been a a major love in my life. And super thankful for sports. I do believe there'll be sports in the new earth. I believe I will be skating. And you could too if you want. Um, But anyways, that's why I digress. But it's interesting to watch my own commitment and other people's commitment to practice. Um, It's just true that we know and understand in these disciplines That you don't just give kids a textbook or a YouTube video and say, have at it, you know, be a hockey player. No, we know the reality is to become good at sports or to become good really at anything, it takes practice. And that practice leads to formation over time. It's hilarious to watch parents come early to make sure their kids are on the ice, so that they can skate and work on their edges and work on their crossovers and work on their front skating and backward skating, and hours upon hours upon hours of time and energy put into that. And ultimately, we all know that that time and energy leads to something, and it's formation. It's a good, good skating and being a good hockey player. And yet, when we when it comes to the church and more specifically our Sunday gatherings. What we tend to do is we just go, is it really worth it? Like is getting together on Sundays and our liturgy together and the effort that it often takes. And I, listen, I have young kids. You've already heard. I know the effort it takes to get out the door and to get to a place and to check my kids in and to do all. I totally get it. But it's funny how we don't seem to question the other disciplines, like all you have your kids in dance or drama or sports, and you know the practice it takes over time to form them into something, and then yet we don't believe that about church. And I think that just needs to be called out. That's silliness to think that what we're doing, because as James K. Smith would say, we're liturgical animals, what we do is of super importance to forming us into the people of God. Just like skating, I think gathering together and practicing regularly in community as the church is something that forms us. So is it worth it? Let's ask the question. Here's what I want to do. And we've done this as a church community in in the past. Let's take it to the lab for a second. So even the things that we do on our Sunday morning gatherings, let's talk about them for a little bit, just a few of these things, and see if they actually shape us. What about things like pre-gathering prayer? So our church gathers for prayer before our Sunday morning gathering. Is it worth it? Is church worth it? Well, what does pre-gathering prayer do? Is it just poops and giggles? Like we're kind of bored, so we're just going to pray before the gathering? Well, obviously not. Pre-gathering prayer teaches us to do things like intercede, to stand with our brothers and sisters in contending prayer. Uh, Ultimately, the Bible has a lot to say about these things. It helps us be drawn into reflection and to prayer for our brothers and sisters and to an encounter with God. What about things like music and singing in our gatherings? So like most churches, when they gather together in their public gathering, there's music and singing. I'll just say this. God's people have always joined together in singing as an act of resistance to the powers and principalities at play. That our singing does something. Uh, When we open up our mouths and we sing corporately together, you know, even a, a number of weeks ago, I was just, I was awestruck as I stood at the back of one of our gatherings and saw our community singing with everything they had. And it was interesting even just to watch as there was people, family, holding loved ones tight as we sang these corporate songs together. And I know as a pastor that there was so many in that gathering that were holding hands with Uh, family members or arms around each other that were walking through deep and desperate times in their lives. And these songs were coming out as this corporate formation, this corporate way of coming to God. And, you know, there's a lot of pain at times in community. Imagine if we didn't have a place to sing. I'll just say that sometimes songs can do things that sermons can't. I just think of my kids, you know, they don't come home repeating sermons or the lessons a lot, but what they do repeat in our home a ton is the songs that we sing corporately as a church and as well the songs that they sing in kids church just a point to show you i think our songs and our music does does something way farther than what oftentimes we give it credit for or what about this what about reading the psalms out loud in our gathering or the public reading of scripture that we have or public prayer in our gathering? I know that for many of us, it's the one time a week where we actually open up our mouths and read and declare the scriptures out loud. Let's keep going. What about the connect time in our gatherings? Is this just like, because we're bored? You know, I'm an introvert at the end of the day and I've always said if I was to um, attend a church that I wasn't really a part of, it would kind of be an awkward moment. I know it can be awkward, especially as an introvert, and I get it. But actually... The turn around for a few minutes and say hi to people in the middle of our gatherings is intentional, and I believe it's formative, right? I believe that actually something, even though it's awkward at times, even there's something that happens in these times. It's a moment where we declare that music isn't just the totality of our worship. It's a moment where we declare as a community that people matter and that we can we, as a community, we can't disconnect our love for God and people. So many people want to like love God vertically and not love brother and sister horizontally. We, when we ask people to turn around and say hello for a few minutes, it's like a, re, it's resisting the temptation just to want to worship God vertically and disconnect that from love of brother and sister. It's this moment where we rebel against saying, oh well, we want God but we don't want each other. That's not how this works. Or what about teaching? You know, every week we come and we have teaching in our, in our gatherings. I would say this. If there's ever a time that teaching was important, it's now in our post-Christian secular moment. Honestly, first of all, a lot of people don't know the biblical story, both inside and outside the church. And the second thing is this. Think about it for a second. Think about the garden. Did the Satan in the garden, did the adversary come to Adam and Eve with like, a bazooka, or a gun to their head with bullets? Obviously not. It's interesting that the Satan came to Adam and Eve. What did he come to them with? An idea. He came to them with, did God really say? Is God really good? You know, this idea that maybe you could be like him. And this is how the enemy actually works. I, a lot of times it's not with like violence or trying to like hold a a gun to our head to try and get us to do things. It's the slow drift away of bad ideas. And so what teaching in the church does, it's our weekly return to good ideas, our weekly return to the gospel of the kingdom, and the wisdom of God that's found dripping in the scriptures. And so this is why as a community we slow down and we do exegesis and we take a deep breath and take a moment to engage the scriptures in our cultural moment. So you have all these things. What about this? What's about another component of our gathering? What about the response through music at the end of our gatherings? It's a statement to say that we are not just here to listen to a dude or a gal with a Britney Spears mic download some information on us, but we are here to respond. Or what about the Eucharist? So every Sunday, we get out of our seats at the end and we come for the bread and the cup. And so many people, oftentimes, especially in contemporary churches, will look at this as old school or routine. You know what we say to that? Absolutely. Because this is a a practice that forms us. We don't just experience salvation in our minds. We believe that as we come to the bread and the cup, we taste the goodness of God. We taste salvation together. Not only is Jesus present in these times, but God uses things like wheat, like wheat thins, and the vine, though it's grape juice in our gathering. We don't have a, a wine permit. So there you go. Those things remind us of God's love, not just in our heads, but in our senses. And we could go on. Serving on a team, what does that do? It shows us that life isn't about me, it's about serving others. Setting up and packing down our gatherings. It's a statement that says we are a community and that every person plays their part. So if you're hanging with me, is church worth it? Is church worth it? Is what the litany and the list of things that I just said that are in our gatherings and the things that we do and practice on on a Sunday morning gathering and a corporate gathering together, is it worth it? I'll just say this. It depends if you believe that your habits shape you. Is church worth it? Well, we seem to think that all the other disciplines that the habits shape us, hours upon hours of skating, hours upon hours of dance practice, hours upon hours of whatever you put your time and energy into shapes you, why wouldn't we think that what we do in our liturgy actually shapes us as the church? Is it worth it? Man, if you're asking me, and I've, again, gone through a season of deconstruction, but as I look at the church, it's absolutely worth it. It's actually, I think the gathered church is more important than ever, especially as we live this out in secular soil. And now, I know many people, many of them leaders, who would question the church. I've actually gone the other way. I think what we do in our gatherings on a weekly basis, our liturgies, shape us more than we will ever know because when we do these things, it's counterformation. Throughout the week, we're being formed by all sorts of things all around us. And really the rebellion of coming together on a Sunday to gather together to worship together, the formation of church is it forms us and it counterforms us into the way of Jesus. And here's the thing. I don't hear a lot of people talking about this. I think it can actually be detrimental to say to people, hey, you need to go to church. I think we should be saying, why? Why is this important? Well, it's important because it shapes us and forms us. And part of our practice together shapes who we are. And so I'm not concerned about time and place and space and even necessarily what people do as much as the weekly formation of church and the discipline of church is important. And it draws this out of us. And so I just want us to think, think about that. Think about formation and when these questions arise. Now I hear these questions and as I engage discussion with people, I'm like, oh, let's think through. Is it worth it? you betcha it's worth it because of what it does in us. And I don't hear anybody questioning, again, other disciplines, I don't hear, I I see all sorts of, I see parents go to the nth degree to get their kids where they need to be in practice, and yet oftentimes we're like, well, is, is Sunday morning really worth, of course it's worth it, because it shapes and does something within us more than just, hey, you need to come to my church. There's something that happens within us corporately as a community. Yeah, random thoughts. Anyways, now here's another thing I hear often, and it's interesting in this moment to hear this. I I hear, and I don't know if you hear this, I hear the word life-giving being thrown around a lot. And it's funny because this is actually a word that we use. We often say that we're a life-giving community or a life-giving church that practices the way of Jesus together. This has kind of become our little slogan. But it's also interesting. I It's interesting to watch and see that I think some think they have the market cornered on this idea of being life-giving. I was actually just talking to someone who I know really well, who recently moved back to the Toronto area, and they've been a part of a church there and been a part him, this person that I know really well, him and his family have kind of gotten back into church life in the Toronto area and have been going to a particular church. Now, this church, it's interesting, as I talked to him, This church really isn't that spectacular. And you know what? That's amazing. He said, you know what? To be honest, the music isn't really that amazing. At times, even the teaching can seem and kind of feel a little dry. But they've really committed for this season to kind of be in that church. And he was just telling me about that. And I actually think there's something beautiful about committing to things that aren't always sexy, I think there's something beautiful about that. But it's interesting. He was in conversation with another pastor recently who said to him, oh man, what you need to do is you need to find a life-giving church. You need to find a life-giving church. And ultimately what this pastor was saying to him is, we're part of a church planting network and the life-giving kind of name is on our church, ne- uh, church planting network. And so you should find a church in our church planting network because we're life-giving giving. And I find this I find this example really really interesting because what does it mean to be life-giving? It's interesting that this person that I know really well has invested their life into a church that has been faithful. These people have been faithful. They love their community they love the scriptures they wrestle through the scriptures there may be not anything you know shiny or super amazing on the outside with this particular church community but they're 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 faithful and they're this community and yet he was kind of being told well you need to find something life-giving my concern would be is that it feels like there can be a movement rising that a certain style of church, and a certain style of church services, a, uh, sorry, a certain style of church service is life giving and others is not. Like you gotta be a part of this movement if you wanna be life giving. And yet there are hundreds of thousands of churches that are just locally faithful, not trying to be amazing. And yet oftentimes these churches can be said by others as though they're not life giving. I think we need to push back on that. You know, I often hear, a quiet church is a dead church. What does that even mean? I don't know. I'm not quite sure what that even means. And I've just been learning that sometimes you find life-giving in some of the most unexpected places. And so this friend, this person that I know well, was a part of something that was just faithful. And I think we need to be careful how what our expectations are when it comes to what is life-giving does it have to look and feel a certain way to be life-giving like do you honestly have to have spider-man checking in your kids or spinning lights on a sunday morning and is that is that what we sum up as life-giving and by by the way those things aren't bad those those things aren't bad at all have spider-man check in your kids and have spinning lights in a fog machine to be honest i don't really care but I just think it's interesting how sometimes we equate those things as life-giving. I just don't think that's true. And I think we have to be reminded that it's, it's oftentimes easy for the church in our moment to adopt practices that Jesus may scratch his head at in the name of being life-giving. And so our practices and what we do, I think at times need to be thought through. I use the example of the crossover church. So if you don't I have Instagram, on Instagram. There's always these videos of, and I, and I love basketball, so I follow these like basketball accounts and oftentimes they'll post these one minute videos of people getting crossed over. So somebody's bouncing the ball and somebody's playing defense and he cut one, the guy with the ball cuts and the other person kind of falls over themselves and everybody is laughing at the person who's fallen over and gets off the bench and it's this big moment because somebody got crossed over but then that person will shoot the ball And guess what happens in the video? The video cuts before the ball gets to the hoop. And the reason for that is is because probably most of the time somebody gets crossed over and, and yet the ball doesn't go in the hoop. And I think it's a picture for us in our moment of just what's important. You know, we can be a crossover church and get excited about the things that don't ultimately matter. But in the end, ultimately the goal of basketball is to get the ball in the hoop And the goal for the church is to be followers of Jesus, to be apprentices of Jesus together, to practice the way on mission together, and to do life with God, to bring others into life with God. And sometimes it's easy to get so enamored with what we do, and yet the end goal is to get the ball in the hoop, and for us, that means bringing others and bring ourselves and others into life with god it can very be easy to be enamored with things that in the end will change and don't really matter you can cross somebody up but the goal of basketball is to get the ball in the hoop and so just thinking about what it means to be life-giving again i'm just i have seen that you can find life-giving places at life-giving churches and all sorts of unique places and spaces And there's been a, you know, even in my own life, as I reflect in in the life of our church at Praxis, there has been this, these moments. One of the big things that happened a number of years ago, maybe five or six, maybe even longer, seven years ago, was the day that I discovered a guy. And this guy, his name is Eugene Peterson. And Eugene Peterson, through his writing, very quickly began to change my life, And one of the things that Eugene helped with is he very strongly in a lot of his writings and books began to push against the American consumeristic idea of church and church leadership. And it was like music to my soul, what Eugene was saying. I found Eugene Peterson in a season where I was just really, really tired of trying to get people to come to my or to our church. I was just exhausted. I was in a season, a moment, maybe five or six years ago, where there had to be a better way than just attracting people to a few songs and a sermon on Sunday. And so I found Eugene Peterson in these books, a long obedience in the same direction, and I read, began to read his biography, and then this amazing little book called Practice Resurrection, and then began to read his books around pastoral theology, and a book called Underneath the Unpredictable Plant, which just really pushes against a lot of our North American conceptions of what the church should be and what pastoring should be. It was like music to my soul because life-giving and life doesn't necessarily mean what our gatherings look like as much as it means coming into life with God and bringing others along. And I just think we need to be open that that looks different in so many different ways. We cannot simply judge something that's life-giving by what it looks like on Instagram, right? So I've just been wrestling the last little while um, as we talk about church and we, as we've talked about church at Praxis and the practice of church, the discipline of church. You know, talking through what will this look like in the future? Because things are changing rapidly. As we know, things are changing incredibly um, in our moment. We have technology now, there's so many things, even in the last decade or two. That has really changed the landscape for the church, and I know you don't really care, you know. But I have a few ideas of what I think the church is going to look like in the future. And amongst all the change and the decline in church attendance, and Barna continues to come out with really good data showing decline, especially amongst younger people. Um, even uh, what we have at practice with the the demographic is typically the age group that is not being reached by the church. So we're so thankful for that. But I also think. As we look ahead to the future of the church, we should take note of a few things. And these are just some random ideas on what I think the church of the future will look like. One, I think church communities are going to be smaller in size, but bigger in impact. And I don't say that to say that big churches are going away. And I, man, it's this is not about big or small. I just think in the future of the church, um, especially in the North American and Canadian context where we are, churches are going to be smaller, But that may not necessarily be a bad thing in the sense of the impact that it's going to bring. Two, I also think that there's going to be less, and I'm not proclaiming this or trying to be prophetic with this over the church, but I do think in the changing times and with demographics and ages and the way people perceive church, that there's going to be less financial resources in the church, but there's going to be a greater sense of stewardship and creativity. So just like when the temple was destroyed and... The temple then emerged this thing throughout the diaspora, where all the Jews were spread out. This thing called the synagogue. I think it's going to be the same for the church. And what I mean by that is if you know the Jewish people lost the temple. But because they lost their temple, it evolved This things in communities all over the place called the synagogue. So they lost their one central place. And yet as they spread out, synagogues popped up all over the place where... The Jewish community met. And I think it's going to be kind of the same in our moment. There's going to be less money, less buildings, less resource given to the church. But I also think the creative creativity that's going to come out of that is going to be beautiful. We're going to have to steward our- ourselves in different ways. We're going to have to use public space. We're going to have to build relationships with organizations and people to do this well in our future because we're not going to have the resource maybe that we once had. And I actually think that's kind of a beautiful thing. Instead of multi-million dollar building projects down the road. Not that those things are necessarily going to go away. But I do think there's going to be beauty in what, what the stewardship is going to take in building relationships with people. And how we move forward because of less finances. Creativity, I believe, is going to rise. Three, I think the future of the church is going to look like this. Those who participate in the church are going to be those who are serious. Those who participate in the church are going to be those who are serious about the kingdom of God. And this is how it's going to be. So the church may become smaller. Again, not that big churches are going away. But I do think there's going to be a seriousness that comes with gathering and being a part of the Jesus movement in this moment. Because ultimately, and I was talking to somebody just a few months ago, a great gal in our church afterwards. And she was just talking to me about how in her profession... Um, there's really no benefit right now for her to be a Christian at all. And what's interesting about this gal is she is like one of the most loving, amazing Jesus followers I know. She's incredible. And she was just being honest. There's there's really no benefit right now in my vocation and in my work for people to even know that I'm a, a Christian. The only negative would kind of come from that. And what I think is that those who participate in the church are going to be the ones that are super serious because there's really no benefit now, like no social or cultural benefit from being a part of it. And I know tons will be swayed by secularism, but I also think this will make for a beautiful church because the people that make the effort to be a part of it are the ones who are serious about the kingdom of heaven and about the way of Jesus being practiced. And I think something's, that, that's going to be a beautiful thing down the road. And four, I'll say this, the future of the church, I'll say this, four, culture is going to continue to be mobile and transient. And we see this now, especially even with millennials and how many jobs they work and how many times they change jobs and how many city, different cities they live in. It's so different than it was even for when I look at my parents who were in their 60s, their generation, who typically stayed in similar places. Culture is going to be mobile and transient, but the church... Is going to be the most effective when it's local patient and faithfully present the church is going to be most effective when it becomes local and it just becomes patient in the way of jesus while culture moves and is going to be moving at a phonetic pace What's going to be the best way to practice this and to see the church take root in cities and towns around North America is going to be people who are faithfully present and patient. And this is kind of actually the kind of people I, I would hope for our community. That is, there's so much transience happening in our, uh, in our culture We'd just be really faithful people. You know, it's interesting. I've been reading a guy named Alan Kreider. He wrote a, he's an Anabaptist guy, historian, done some great work. He wrote a book called The Patient Ferment of the Church. And man, it's just blown my mind how in the first century, how the church began to grow. And it was because they were just very patient people. At some points, their gatherings weren't even public because of the fear of the Roman Empire over them. And yet the church exploded. And, and I don't know if this is adequate, but I would sum up Kreider's research in his book like this When the church wasn't trying to be something, it became something. When the church wasn't trying to become something, it became something. It's so odd that the church wasn't even really trying to grow. Actually, Kreider would even say that, like, evangelism for the early church wasn't even like top priority because again some of the cultural dynamics with the Roman Empire and Caesar over them. And he said, "Listen, he said his idea is, man, when they weren't trying to be something, they became something." And I think that may be that may be the greatest thing as I think about the church right now is it's really easy to try and want to be something. And then you're just fighting against the grain when you're trying to be something. It, and we've tried. I mean, this is this is part of our story. When you're trying to do things, when you're trying, you know, it sounds good in the name of Jesus to try and change the world. And yet we've kind of entered now into more of a season where we're not, you know, we're not really trying to be much. And way more love and light has come from that than when we were trying to be something. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was with a pastor, great guy, we're hanging out, and Heather was there at the table, too, and he said to us, listen, I've just been following your journey a bit, and he said, you guys just feel comfortable in your own skin, and I was like, man, this sums it up, and I, I almost wanted to cry, I almost wanted to give the guy a hug at the table, and Heather could feel it, too, that though it's been a journey, um, I'm glad that that sums up the journey right now not trying to be something and it seems like when the church throughout history wasn't trying to be something uniquely that's when God wanted to use them and so faithful presence is such a big thing you know oftentimes we want change and we want to see people change and we want to see the world changed but change takes time and faithfulness and commitment and it ultimately takes the long road So this church, the church, a beautiful expression of God's love and light in the world, this community that's got, this covenant community that's together, I believe there's so much hope. And I do think we need to wrestle through some of these things. Is it worth it? I mean, you're going to have to to decide that. What does it mean to be life-giving? Is it just about what we see, you know? Is it just about what we see on social media? Or is it more than that? These are things we need to wrestle through as we move forward. Lots of fun ahead, brothers and sisters. Thanks for listening. I hope this hasn't been too long or too boring for you. But as we get our feet wet in some of these discussions, I think it's important to talk about how the kingdom and the church relate together, what the gospel means, what salvation is. And now we're going to step into some uh, other interesting things down the road here, especially as we talk next about hell and judgment. And one of the ideas is that hell is the mercy of God. We hope you can join us. Hopefully this has been helpful. We will continue uh, these midweek dialogues and discussions throughout uh, the fall. We hope you can listen in. Hopefully this has been helpful again. If you have questions, please um, submit these questions at hello at mypraxis.church or mypraxis.church slash questions. And if you're in London, we'd love for you to join in with us and join in on Sundays. We gather at Goodwill Industries right in the heart of the real London, London, Ontario, Canada at 1030 at Goodwill Industries. Have a great week. We'll talk to you soon.